Hello and welcome to a new episode of Let's Shape the Future sponsored by Beamery. I am your host Ben Dickinson and this is a show where I chat with business leaders, inspiring individuals and more about who and what is shaping the world we live in. If you do enjoy the content, please leave a review and share with any friends, family, colleagues or anyone else you think would also enjoy. Without further ado, let's crack on with a great episode. Fintech, leadership and culture are the themes of a really exciting episode of Let's Shape the Future. I'm thrilled to be joined today by David Breer, CEO and co-founder of 11FS to discuss all of those topics. So it's a pleasure to have you join me today, David, so thank you so much. Yeah, no worries at all. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me on to chat. Thanks. Um, so I always love to start with going back to the beginning of a guest career. So how has your career evolved over time to end up in the position that you're in now? It'd be great to sort of understand the roles that you've had leading to the moment you you co-founded 11FS. Yeah, sure. I mean, I sort of loosely describe my career as sort of, you know, uh, an event of uh, sort of accidental things, if I'm honest with you. It's uh, one of those ones of um, being in the right place at the right time and, uh, you know, seeing opportunity when other people are, are not is is sort of usually the, the thread on that. I should say, I mean, I work in financial services sort of day in, day out today, but and literally no intention on doing that in any way, shape or form. It seemed like a very bad idea. It looked like a really boring industry. So had no intention on doing that at all. Um, I was happily playing sports. Um, I'm a big team sports guy. I played like 11 county sports for for nice. uh, uh, Norfolk and you know rugby and badminton and basketball and athletics and all sorts of stuff that I was doing. Unfortunately, uh, one bad accident uh, when I was 19 kind of put uh, an end to that. Unfortunately, so I've now got three ligaments in my left knee, uh, knee that were needing to be replaced. So six mm-hmm. pins over there in my left knee. Um, so I sort of had to go from doing sports and uh, falling back to training to be a physiotherapist to sadly getting a proper job. So um, it was a it was a sort of a difficult transition, if I'm honest with you, because I'm naturally, you know, I prefer um, more kind of black and white things. And actually, mm-hmm. business is all shades of grey. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, that transition was quite an interesting one. But but thankfully, you know, the same year that I got a a basketball, which was a sport I was mostly interested in, uh, was the same year that I got a computer as well. So I was pretty good at computing and and sort of transitioned across from uh, sports and uh, human biology and everything that went with that to mathematics, business and uh, and computing. Um, and it was a super interesting one. I did sort of an undergrad in computing, did a postgrad in computing. Um, and what I sort of realized, if I'm honest with you, and it was only at the end of doing my uh, my undergrad, uh, I came out with a T1, which is, you know, for anybody listening to this who gets a T1, I'm no way dissing this in any way, shape or form. But I came out and realized that I just hadn't tried. Um, and I sort of, because I was naturally just good at sports, I didn't really have to try that hard. And sadly, I sort of took that ethos into really what I was doing uh, from a business sense. Um and literally from that moment, I, and I can remember it so vividly, you know, literally the color of the railings, you know, coming outside and opening up that perforated envelope and realizing that actually, you know, two one's good, but I've kind of now got the same qualification as hundreds of thousands of other people in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I just realized that actually work ethic is what determines success, or at least what gives you the opportunity for opportunities. Um and that's really all I've done since then is I've tried to work harder than everybody else in the room. Uh, I've tried to really push myself in, in everything that I'm doing, both in terms of, you know, what I can achieve and what I believe I can achieve. Um, but equally, those around me as well to, to sort of keep up with that pace. Um, so, yeah, did my postgrad. That was great. Got a double first. Um, and then just took that into the rest of my career, really. Um, I've worked in some of the biggest insurance companies, some of the biggest banking companies, uh, some of the biggest management consultancies, uh, some of the biggest Indian offshoring organizations as well since then. Um, I've always kind of tried to bring along some of those learnings from playing team sports. You know, I really do think that it's a team sport. You know, the, you don't achieve anything as an individual. It's all about people. And it's all about understanding both from a uh, physiological perspective, but from a psychological perspective as well, what is it that makes people tick and makes people do the things that ultimately benefits the organization that they are working for and, and them as well. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, I have to say. I mean, the, the reason I ended up in financial services, my my dad sort of, I think I was still hobbling around on crutches at the time, but bought me a, a stack of papers and basically said, pick an industry that's going to be broken 
still when you come out of university because there's sort of no point trying to fix something that somebody else has already fixed. And um, mm-hmm. he was in oil and gas. Uh, and, you know, I, I sort of joke a bit of nepotism probably would have been great for my career. But <laughs> uh, um, but actually going into banking uh, really looked like the space. This thing called the Internet looked like it was really going to catch on. And um, and banking looked like it would be still broken by the time I had a chance to fix it. Um, and so so be's the case, really. Um, I joined a big bank in 2008, uh, which really sort of got me into to the banking space. Uh, and for anybody listening to this who remembers the lovingly the financial crisis that kicked off in the middle of that year, it was probably the weirdest time to join financial services. Mm, yeah, but okay. in amongst all of the chaos is opportunity. So uh, from there, ended up pitching to the board for uh, the, all of the investment, 1.6 billion to to kick off uh, the major transformation for Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, went and ran after that uh, the digital banking practice for a big Indian offshoring company. Uh, and then lately, before starting 11FS, ran the global digital banking practice for a big management consultancy company. Um, and it's been fascinating. I really think we're at such an inflection point for financial services um, because every other industry is just doing digital far better. They understand what it means and they understand what it means to customers. And and frankly, they're providing a service that people care about. So that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm, no, it's really interesting. And I, I resonate with quite a lot of what you say in, in regards, especially like the, the the degree stuff. Like um, I think what I came to understand is that in a lot of industries, having a degree itself is no longer what sets you apart from individuals. If anything, that's what puts you on a level playing field because organizations are looking for ways to get rid of applicants. Um, also, they have such an influx. They're looking to what, what can they, what criteria can they put on it to filter them down? And one is, do they have a degree? Um, so as you say, that's why, for example, I did a placement year at university because I was like, look, I need some experience before leaving university. The only way to do that is to either have part-time jobs or to get real world experience by doing summer internships or placement years and stuff like that. So no, I massively resonate with that. And it's, it's probably a reason why like I launched this podcast was what can I do to set myself apart from other individuals and sort of show that I'm going that extra mile? Um, so no, it's, it's really, really interesting. And um, for, for those that don't know, um, who are 11FS and what is the organization looking to achieve? Sure. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the learning really from, you know, working at a big insurance company or, in a, or a management consultancy company or a big bank, essentially, um, has kind of really led us to, to why 11FS exists in the first place. So uh, we found out the business back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, the, the, the vision of the business is to change the fabric of financial services. And, and what we really mean by that is the, the inflection point that we're seeing in, in so many different threads of what financial services is, whether it's regulatory, whether it's technological, whether it's, I mean, customers' expectations being dramatically different, whether it's the, the competitive landscape fundamentally shifting and therefore the, the pressures on the existing players within the system really, really changing. All of that is just really up for grabs. And that's so exciting, you know? And if you couple with that, the fact that as an industry, um, banking and, and you know insurance, financial services more broadly, really has been investing in in digitization rather than digital. Uh, and there's a you know it sounds semantics. It sounds like you know okay, well, what's the difference between those two things? But yeah. as an industry, financial services has really taken a, an analog form factor. They've taken people. They've taken paper. They've taken processes that were created for yesteryear. And don't get me wrong. I mean, those guys have been wildly successful for the last 300, 400 years with the financial services system as it, as it sits. But digital is not the same as, as analog. You know, the, the, the virtues of what makes a great service in a digital world is fundamentally different. Um, and that's not just a mobile app or a, a website to sell the widgets that you've been selling for the last couple of hundred years. It, it's fundamentally changing how your business structures and how your business fundamentally operates. You know, there are big organizations out there, big banking organizations that it costs, you know, over 1.4 billion pounds to, to just keep the lights on when it comes to all of their IT systems a year. That's insane. Um, you know, there are no there's no startup in the world that would start where the incumbent organizations actually are. Um, so what we're doing with 11FS is, is working with startups, with gigantic banks, with really big tech companies, with regulators across the world 
to really bring about this change that we feel we're on the precipice of uh, of seeing within financial services. And that takes the factor of, well, doing uh, strategies for some of those big organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, it involves building brand new greenfield things for people. So we've built out new banks in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in the UK, in the US, in Saudi. Um, so we've had a pretty busy six years, I have to say. Mm-hmm. No, it's really interesting. And what you were saying there about it's not just digitizing what they were doing originally, but really taking them digital is, as you say, it's like instead of, you know, I read one example on your your website that was instead of just taking like a, a paper bank statement and then doing it on your phone, actually having like the app on your phone that gives you like real time insights into what you're spending and that sort of stuff. And that's where just hearing that from you sort of made it click that it wasn't just taking a process and putting it online. It's actually fundamentally changing that process to be digital um so no no fascinating and um just to so we've got a little segment um that i like to call what has shaped the guest because let's shape the future is not just pure business it's also about uncovering the individual behind the job title so to help with that i have a, a couple of quick fire questions nothing um too, too intrusive does, does that sound okay yeah all good far away perfect so firstly what is your favorite activity to do at the weekend um, my, my son's really into football at the moment, nice. um, under 10s doing really well. So um, I can't tell you how much I look forward to going and watching him play on a Saturday morning. So definitely that. Nice. And when doing a little bit of research, uh, it seems that you're a big Marvel fan. Um, so if you could be one superhero, who would you be and why? Well, I mean, that's a good good question. And actually, I mean, we loosely based our recruitment policy on the Avengers model, actually, as well, nice. in terms of bringing people together. So uh you know, I um, uh, the the team would be quick to pick up Thor and Captain America and Iron Man and those types of things. And um, so I'm Nick Fury. So I'll, nice. I'll go with that. Like uh, I'm the guys behind the guys, essentially trying to piece everything together. Nice. No, I love that. And uh, if you could pick one holiday destination for the rest of your life, where would it be? And you can't pick Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say that. I mean, I love where I live, and I'm so lucky to live here. That actually being here does feel like a holiday, you know. Particularly when actually you, uh, I'm coming off very partridge here, aren't I? In, in that <laughs> very, sense, but, yeah, very. Um, but but on the basis that I work in London and the the sort of hustle and bustle of that, um, coming back to Norwich feels like a holiday whenever I'm doing it. So it feels like I go on holiday every weekend, which is good. Mm, nice. No, I, I resonate with that. I'm from Southeast London, and I moved down um, further into Kent uh, just over a year ago. And it's so interesting, like going from that environment to living on a country park, like the people are actually nice when you drive, which is, is really strange. They, they say hello to you when you walk mm. by and everything. It's, and, and oddly make eye contact. It's like, it's like a whole new world. It really is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, those, those little things do make a massive difference, don't they? But, uh, but I don't, you know, if I had to get on a plane, it would be, um, it would be road. Like uh, there's no place in the world like Rome for just flabbergasting of of kind of every different type of architecture that you can find. There's, uh, I mean, even their shopping centres over there are, are more beautiful than anything you will see anywhere else. So, uh, and the food ain't bad either. So, mm. yeah, Rome would be my destination. Yeah, that's my deciding criteria is definitely the food. Um, and uh, <laughs> who's your biggest inspiration, and what lessons did you learn from them? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, my. Um, my mum is, is really my my biggest sort of inspiration, really. I think everything that I know about work ethic mm-hmm. um, and how to be um, really sort of comes from, from her. Um, sadly, she passed away on January 12th this year, actually. So um, we're sort of uh, keeping moving and keeping moving forwards. But but yeah, I wouldn't be anywhere without my mum, for sure. Mm, nice. And I'm really sorry to hear that, David. Um, and uh, so that's the end of... Um what a shape we guess. So what we, um, we'll talk a little bit now about um, financial services. And um, I know that you said that digital financial services is only 1% finished. What does that actually mean? And what will it take for the other 99% to be achieved? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's um, and, and it's been such an interesting thing for us to, to kind of put that out there. The reaction to it, you know, when you go into a boardroom of a bank and go, guys like we are one percent into this journey and they're like yeah but we've spent like six <laughs> billion pounds to get here so you know we must be further than that um and actually i mean the one percent finished piece is is more of a mindset than it is 
quantifiable data. Like there has been no statistical evaluation of Lloyds Banking Group or Bank of America or whatever. Um, but what we're saying is, is that there is more of this journey ahead of us than, than actually in the past. Because if you look at the rate of innovation, you look at the rate of change. Again, if you look at the, the technological innovation, the, the regulatory innovation that we're seeing, all of these things, then actually the, the journey is much further ahead of us than it is from you know, looking back in terms of the last three, 400 years in terms of what financial services is, is really going to be. Um, so we sort of turn that into a very positive message, really, because, you know, there are growth mindset people, there are fixed mindset people, there are, uh, you know, people who would like to think that it was all done. Um, I personally use it internally at 11FS really kind of as a mantra about staying hungry and staying motivated, because actually, if you always know that the industry is in flux and the opportunities are ahead of you, then you're always working, you're learning, you're always moving forwards. Mm. Um, I think it's the organizations and the industries that actually think that they've done everything and that you know they can't be touched that are the ones that usually come to quite a uh, kind of a calamitous end. Mm. When you were talking there, I was just thinking, I, I when I did a re- bit of research, I was thinking, oh, so there must be like a an end goal, but really it could be like the 99%, it, it will just never end because technology continues to evolve. You will never reach that end goal, which a lot of people I've spoken to is actually the best way to be is to have a goal that really you can no longer, or sorry, you can never really achieve because it will always ensure that you strive to be the most successful. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason why, I mean, if you look at, and there's lots of, you know, writers have written about it. I mean, business is sort of infinite, really. You know, your your tasks are never really done. So, in a you know, in, a, in an industry that was steady state for a very long period of time, because of the, uh, I mean, financial services has been a bit of a, a walled garden, really. The regulatory system has has prohibited people being able to get into it. So they have been, you know, heavily protected. And you know, it's like sort of going into a a jungle and finding animals that have never learned that humans are bad it's like you don't run away you know it's because there's no natural prey to them um but actually what we're sort of seeing now since you know since 2008 and since the the regulatory change that's happened in the industry we've got google and amazon and apple and you know starling and monzo and Revolut. you know we've got startups and gigantic organizations coming into banking which actually is moving from this sort of calmness and you know, the red one worrying about the blue one and the green one, and, and that's it. That's all they had to do to this really sort of complex and chaotic landscape, which which kind of means that the the ability to sort of not respond to the market, not make these changes, um, and not respond really quickly um, have gone away. You know, the really only sustainable advantage that I think any organization, you know, ours, anybody's has got is talent and speed of change. That's it. Like actually, if you can't attract the right people, if you can't unlock uh, unlock their potential, and just to you know focus on that for a second, like the mission of Eleven FS is nothing to do with financial services. It's about our mission is literally just unleashing talent. Like actually, if we attract great people and we unleash their potential, we achieve our vision. Um, so I think if if every organization just focused on find great people, unleash their potential, and increase your velocity, your speed of change, well, you're going to win. I mean, if you look in the industry right now, you know, it costs a big bank, maybe 200 pounds to run a current account. It costs a, a Monzo or a Starling 15 pounds. Uh, you know, if they want to, if Monzo come up with a great idea and they want to get it and execute it into the hands of 5 million people, we're talking like three weeks, you know, um, if a big bank does that, they literally won't have the meeting in the first three weeks, never mind actually have it in the hands of customers. So, so the, the 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 sort of requirements to play the game, the requirements, so almost the the entry at this stage in terms of what a, a basic financial services system should be should be doing, these guys are really dramatically failing in that sense. And don't get me wrong, some of the startups are massively failing in some senses as well. And like, don't get me started on some of the you know the cryptocurrency companies who were coming in and not understanding regulation in any way so there's fault all around mm-hmm. but one of them is really deeply connected to customers problems um, and one of them is deeply connected to shareholder problems and they are very different things mm-hmm. no no it's, it's an interesting um talk track there and was there like a 
a time when financial services actually started taking startups and those sorts of organizations seriously up and like the big banks of the world obviously they saw their competitors as oh they might just switch customers might just switch for the the 100 quid that you get when you switch current accounts or whatever that is and they probably never really took some of those startups seriously until a certain point do you know what yeah, when that definitely. point was and i mean it's been interesting it's been a it's been a slow uh, a slow transition, if I'm honest with you. Um, but actually, you know, the banks have tran- transitioned through that. I mean, to start with, they were sort of, well, they'll never get regulated. And then the regulator gave them access to licenses. And then it was like, well, customers will never switch to it. And then millions of people switched to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, at the point that we're at in the cycle is, you know, the, the sort of last pushback is like, yeah, but they'll never reach profitability. And then you start pointing at, well, Starling's hitting profitability. You know, TransferWise is doing amazing things. Uh, we've got people like Oak North who have been profitable forever and a day now in terms of that sense. So, you know, the market is at a, the fintech market is at a very different point in maturity, you know. And, and I mean, it should be said as well, I think a lot of people forget that we're comparing a 300-year organization mm. to one that's been around for five years. You know, so actually the point in maturity of the complexity of the product sets that they're offering I mean, it is like night and day, right? But it just shows it, actually if the answer is, uh, and there's a, again, a lot of people have written, Clayton Christensen very famously written about things like Innovator's Dilemma around, you know, can startups get to scale before incumbents really understand innovation? And that's literally what we're seeing play out in the market right now. Um, but a lot of them have really changed their tune. I mean, if you look at somebody like the, um, you know, the 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 CEO of, um, JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon. I mean, four years ago, I mean, he would loudly stand up there and tell you fintech will never catch on. And, you know, it's a, it's a, um, you know, all a, a scheme and blah, 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 blah. Those guys bought nutmeg, you know, and actually they're investing more heavily now than anybody in the cryptocurrency side of things, in the digital asset side of things, in, in fintech more broadly. So look, it, it's reached a different point of maturity. I'd say fintech is probably one of the most exciting, most interesting industries that, you know, really anybody would want to work in. Um, and because of that, then everybody's caught on to the tune. Mm. It sort of reminds me of the phrase, like, first they laugh, then they follow. Like, it happens a lot with big incumbents, obviously, wanting to kind of protect themselves, but by disregarding stuff that's coming along. But as you say, with the adoption of Revolut, Monzo, et cetera, uh, Moneybox and those sorts of organizations, especially with upcoming generations being being more willing to try those different banks out and um like adopt those things if anything it's only going to become more of a problem as time evolves so it's so important for those incumbents to sort of um change how they work yeah i mean i think the thing on that though is it happens in every industry and and really what leads to that is being ridiculously successful for a prolonged period of time you know i've kind of likened it very heavily to like you know, any heavyweight boxer goes through that arc, right? They, mm-hmm. you know, when they're young and hungry and and uh, nobody's heard of them, they're getting up at four o'clock in the morning and running miles and miles and, you know, eating thousands of eggs, you know I mean? Like whatever they need to do to get that opportunity, right? Um, but as they're more successful, like actually the effort becomes harder to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, and really what we've seen, you know, banks have been the undisputed heavyweight to the world for, of the financial services industry for a really long time. Um, but it's not just that industry. I mean, 11FS exists because well, we're taking on McKinsey and Accenture and KPMG and Bain and whatnot, right? So actually, we're the equivalent of the Monzos and the Starlings to HSBC and Barclays that actually 11FS is to, to the McKinsey's and the Accenture's and the Deloitte's because, you know, actually apathy of the success that they've had for a long period of time and an inability to, to really adjust to a digital world means both their business model and the things that they're communicating to people uh, are no longer really relevant in that sense. So it's interesting, every every industry, you know, whether it's what Spotify did to, you know, distribution or whether it's, you know, what the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of digital distribution of news did to the newspapers, like every industry goes through some sort of existential threat. It's just financial services and consultancy's turn. The old, the old blockbuster and Netflix example comes to mind as well, right? Um, Absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned, right, talent 
is a universal issue for organizations or something that every organization has to have. So when a company comes to you and says, David, we need 11FS to, to help us become digital, what are some of those most common issues um, that incumbent businesses are facing? Um, and also, what is the process you go through with them to sort of uncover how 11FS can help? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think this is, it's an interesting thing. I, I feel often very much like we are, um, very often if somebody comes to you and says, hey, there's this specific thing, we really need your help with this specific thing. It's like, but is it really? You know, is that really the problem? I, I find our role, and actually through my career as a, you know, a consultant, a Gartner and Infosys in all different places, it's like, I feel actually the industry and the point that I was making a second ago around the processes, the structure of those industries sort of needs to change is um, I see our role a little bit different to that. We're more like GPs, you know, and actually okay. you need to kind of not be, we're not there because we're the smartest people in the room or that we, you know, we know everything about everything about everything. We will listen to people and actually understand what the problems are. Because if you don't really understand what the problem is, you've got no idea how to actually solve for that. And that's not just the organizations themselves because quite honestly when somebody says it hurts here the reality of the problem is it's probably somewhere else it's probably something else um, and while many organizations sort of stand up and go we want to sell more mortgages we want to do you know create more balances for savings or change our core banking system or you know strategy for millennials whatever um, quite often the underlying problem is something more dramatic to that mm-hmm. um, it really goes back to what I was saying earlier on is if actually you can't optimize your organization for efficiencies of change, which is, you know, if it's costing you a fortune to do something and a competitor can do it at a fraction of the cost, well, you, you might seem sort of like you're close now, but actually with the market changing, that's only going to get worse. You know, that problem's only going to get exacerbated. So quite often spending time with people to learn, well, what does digital mean from an operating model perspective? How do you deploy that against a culture that actually enables people to make decisions and move things? Because that traditional, you know, uh, hire and fire kind of, uh, you know, pyramid chain of command where, you know, the, uh, the, the CEO is just waiting there to decide what color the thing is going to be or whatever, um, you know, that just doesn't work in a digital environment. And it doesn't work if you want to bring in talented people who want the ability to, to really make an impression on the thing that they're doing. So, um, you know, it might be that they come and ask us to do a strategy for, a, you know, doing a greenfield bank or whatever. Um, but very often we spend as much time teaching them actually what a digital operating model, what a good culture looks like, hmm. uh, and actually how if you get those things right, then everything else comes off the back of it. You know, I, I often say it's, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. Uh, and getting people to really... Uh, come to terms with, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but unless you spend it well and you invest it in, in the right operational infrastructure, you're going to fail. Mm, no, absolutely. It's sort of like, to, to reference your GP point, it's like treating the source and not the symptom, right? It's Yeah, um, yeah I would say you got you got to look for the disease and not the symptom. Like mm. you, and, and that's all the time. But the hard thing with that and, and the thing that... Um, you know, the thing that I think really does differentiate us is we never go into an organization that will tell them what they want to hear. Because um, very often, you know, uh, hey, if you've been told you got cancer, the thing you want to hear is that it's all gone, right? Um, but if the reality is that actually you haven't solved that problem or you don't really understand what the customer needs or your investment in technology so far has not really solved the problem that you're looking for or just don't have the talented people in the organization to pull this off. Um, we sort of don't pull any punches on those things. You know, we lead with a huge amount of empathy because we've been there and we've done it and we can we can say how dramatically hard it is to change big organizations mm-hmm. towards this. Um, but yeah, if people want people who will just come in and tell them what they want to do or tell them what they want to hear, we're just not those guys. Sorry to interrupt, guys, and I hope you're enjoying the conversation. As we reach the halfway point of the show, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about the sponsors of today's episode of Let's Shape the Future, Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform helps the world's largest organizations deliver more human experiences for talent and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce. 
Whether you're struggling to compete for the best talent, are looking to move the needle on your DEI objectives, or simply leverage AI to drive more efficiency, then Beamery could be the best next step in your talent transformation journey. If you'd like to learn more, then visit beamery.com or reach out to me directly and I can put you in contact with the right people. Now, let's get back to the episode. And do you find um, that incumbent organizations are, are receptive to that type of approach? Does it, does it vary business to business or the sort of, I'm, I'm assuming it will vary depending on the personalities of the leadership that are leading that business. But um, do you find that they're sort of willing to listen to that type of approach or they're kind of like, oh, don't tell us how to do our job type of vibe? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it does very much vary. Uh, to your point, it does really vary about, um, you know, what they have um, previously told their board, you know, where they see that they are in that journey yep. and actually their understanding as well. I mean, the, the challenge is, is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is the, the knock-on effects of new technology being deployed against business operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is still such a, um, a, a narrow amount of very senior leadership within big organizations that really understand what good looks like in that sense. Um, so it kind of does make it a bit of a challenge in there, but but you can kind of lead with one way. I mean, if you if you change your aspiration, you've got to change your approach. Uh, and if you are not prepared to change your approach, well, your aspiration is never going to be met. So depending on the organization, and we've worked, you know, with many, um, you have to take a very different approach to getting them to the place where they want to be. But it is a journey. Um, inevitably, though, I mean, the the, the luxury that we've had. Uh, I mean, over the last six years and working, you know, working globally, there's never a bank I've gone into where everybody's just an idiot. Like, mm. you know, there's always some, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but there's there's never an organization where you just go in and go, look, nobody gets it. There is always a, a group of people who dramatically understand what customers need because they're on the front line of talking to them, who really understands the, the cultural barriers, the inhibitors that are being placed in front of people. Um, and fundamentally understand that, you know, not everything's perfect. But again, I think it goes back to that, that you know, the 1% finished piece. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find people who believe that digital is, and digital banking is really 1% finished, well, actually, they've got the aspiration to try and move people towards the next 99%. Uh, if you find people who are like, no, we, we, we nailed this 300 years ago. <laughs> and like the, the, the instruments we put in place and the, you know, this is just like, you know, widgets through websites. Um, well, I mean, I think the proof of the industry and the movements that we're seeing of customers uh, and the response of the market to to new form factors when it comes to, you know, buy now, pay later or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like actually if we only stay within the frameworks of traditional financial instruments for, you know, the next thousand years, then actually we're never really going to move the industry forward at all. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, the yesteryear financial services relied so heavily on people you know, they were insanely empathetic and they would do the work around the systems in order to provide the service that people wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, now computers are taking all of those people out of that process. Then all we're left with is dramatically unempathetic interfaces that don't really deliver on what people need. So, you know, there has to be a better way if we are to to really change the fabric of financial services. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's interesting, as you say, that sometimes it's just about having an organization like yourself give those individuals a voice in the business, like the ones that are driving that change and sort of elevating that up to senior leadership. Um, but uh, to sort of um, move on to, to you as a person and your sort of best ways of working, I know that you're a big fan of putting motivational um, or inspirational post-it notes on your desk um, when you're working. And one I saw was a graph which plots effort versus impact what are your top tips for optimizing and minimizing effort whilst maximizing impact? Yeah, it is a constant struggle, right? It really is a constant struggle. I mean, and it's an interesting one because the, I mean, if you're sort of listening to this and you're starting a business or you're listening to this, and you, you sit in a corporate, like prioritization of time, mm-hmm. like literally time is the least uh, resource you have. It's the most valuable thing that you can use, but so many people use it so unwisely mm-hmm. you know actually I, I remember kind of sitting in a um a, a big corporate and looking at my diary and being like the thing that is the most important thing that i have to do today does not appear in this eight hours of solid you know diary tetris that has gone on so like if this is the most important thing and i'm doing these things well you 
nobody can expect me to achieve what I'm setting out, what I'm actually being set out to achieve, right? So I, I think that's it. You know, it, it is a, it is that column, constant balance of saying, what is the most important thing that I can do? Um, and actually what that requires, it sounds easy because if you just get up every morning and go, is this important and do it or don't do it based on the answer to that question, that seems pretty straightforward. But you've actually got to think about what is important first. So having a really near-term view of the most critical things that you have to achieve and then relentlessly eradicating anything that gets in the way of you doing those things. Um, because, I mean, when you're in a corporate environment, you're like, well, I mean, we can do that next quarter or like, you know, Susie's on holiday and Steve's <laughs> out. So let's kind of book that, you know, after the summer and whatnot. Like if you're an entrepreneur and you start a business, I mean, you might go bankrupt in six weeks unless you put some money in the bank, right? So so you've got to kind of figure out those things that that motivate you in order to, to establish that rhythm, you know, never put off to tomorrow something you can do today is a, a thing that I, I really believe in. Um, but I kind of embrace the the sort of thinking and you sort of mentioned the post-it notes. There's like three that I live by every day on my, on my computer, which is absolutely that, that, um, that graph, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything I'm doing is like, how do we reduce the level of effort in this to maximize the impact that it can have? Uh, and if we kind of get that, um, the 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 second one is um, if it's important, do more than not. Um, because there are things that I hate doing, but I know that they're important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I hate business development. Like I'm naturally an introverted guy. I, I don't like strangers. You know, I've been, I think my mum and dad told me that a lot when I was a little, like growing up in a little village, it's like, look out for strangers. So like talking to strange people, like I just don't like it at all. Um but actually, if it's important to the business, well, then I have to do more of that every day because actually, you know, you find with everything, whether it's eating habits, whether it's exercise habits, whether it's, you know, business development or whatever, if you do it little and often, well, actually, you might get a taste for it. You might get good at it. You might not like it, but you might be good at it. Um, so essentially, you know, being in a situation where I I kind of really push on on those ones. Um, and then the last one I will um, I will show you because um, it really is um, one of those ones. Like I say, I mean, I'm moving house uh, at the moment, so I've literally um, literally took all of these down uh, <laughs> as as about to about to move. But if you bear with me two seconds, there you go. That one. Uh, and and really, what this is a reminder of is um, there are two things: there's the future and there's the past, mm-hmm. and actually there's only one of those things that you can really fundamentally affect. Um, And and actually, if you try and stick to that and stick with that understanding that things are never going to all go in your, your favor, like, and, you know, shit happens uh, in business, in your private life and everything, then you've just got to kind of come to terms with that really quickly and realize that from this point onwards, I can, I can uh, respond how I need to respond. I can change tomorrow. I can change the next day. I can change the next month. I can change next year, but I can't do anything about yesterday. Mm, yeah. And to that point, I think it's also, it's, it's also about not only having the goal that you want, but also knowing the sort of little steps that you need in order to reach that goal. Right. Now, I think there's a lot of people that maybe become impatient with reaching that, that huge end goal um but don't want to take the steps and that, that sort of leads me on to my next point apologies for this is going to be a bit of a long talk track for this but we 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 kind of live in a world where upcoming generations see the best versions of others and the worst versions of themselves right and social media and other platforms have have sort of played a massive part in that and i, I definitely think this has transitioned into the workplace with people chasing job titles salaries and and essentially to my point they're wanting to reach the summit of the mountain as quickly as possible, but are not recognizing the massive piece of rock that they need to navigate in order to reach it. What advice would you give to those individuals, but also what advice would you give to leadership who are responsible for getting the best out of those people? It, it is, um, it is a real challenge, you know, it really is a challenge. And, and look, as an employer as well, like, you know, we work really hard to find and attract, you know, brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to kind of come to terms with the fact that most people is going to be in a job for two years, like absolute maximum two years. Right. Um, I mean, I, I remember I kind of had a rule of thumb when I was 
uh, you know, not working for 11FS. Like I figure at this point, I might as well just like, I'm, I'm at 11FS by now, you know, cause this is what we do. But, but when I sort of was in more of a corporate life, actually every three months, if I didn't add something to my CV, I was, I was thinking, well, actually, if I'm not adding experience to me, well, actually the, the balance of this equation is not quite right. You know, is not quite there. Um, and it's difficult, right? Patience is a very difficult thing. But actually, I mean, my, um, and, I, and I, you know, I'm going to take this in a dark twist way, but like my dad died when he was 53, I think he was, mm-hmm. you know, like actually you never know how long you've got. Do you know what I mean? So, so actually the patience has to be given a bit of tension with urgency um and and i think the i think the challenge on that though is, is that um to your point um i think there is a really unrealistic understanding of what it takes to be excellent at something mm-hmm. um and i think there's a difference a subtle difference between those two things you know the the old kind of adage about 10,000 hours to become you know a like a super professional at a thing i think really does still exist you know and actually being in a situation where you know, from our, from our perspective in an organization, if somebody, I kind of use the, you know, the, the sort of sporting metaphor, it's like, actually, look, if I stood at the halfway line at a basketball court and threw like 10 balls over the top of my head, I might land one of them, but it doesn't mean I can do it every time, mm-hmm. right? So true mastery of the skill sets, true mastery of, of being able to repeat on demand the thing that you can do once um, takes a lot more patience. It takes a lot more determination. Um, and actually, it takes a lot more understanding of not only what you're good at, but what you're bad at, and actually how to overcome or mitigate those things uh, in order to be successful. So I, I, I really, um, I think to employers, I think the message is you've got to kind of come to terms with it. I'm not sure you're going to put that genie back in the bottle in terms of people moving around. And it doesn't mean, you know, a lot of people get, well, you know, uh, they're in love with their first 15 employees. And then when the turnover starts, then, well, actually, they stop loving. And it's like, well, that's not really how it works. You you have to provide a great environment. You have to provide a great culture to get people in in the first place. And that's why they stay around for as long as they do. You know, we've been really lucky at 11FS. Um, you know, some of the people who I think literally employee number one is, is Michael Bailey, uh, the guy who saw all of our podcasts, still at the uh, 11FS because he's doing something he's deeply passionate about doing and and given the remit to go and make those things happen in the way that he wants to. So um, I think it's it's going to be a challenge going forwards, but I think both sides of that equation, the talent and the teams trying to attack the talent have to kind of come to terms with it as well. Mm, no, absolutely. And no, I resonate with a lot of what you said. I think the, the again, to, to continue the, the sort of dark, the dark twist stuff. So um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm 24 and last year I, I lost my best friend um, to cancer. He was only 23 um, and it, yeah, it was absolutely awful time. Um, but I, I think it's important to sort of take those sorts of things that happen. And for me, it massively put into perspective, not only not taking things for granted, but as you say, like you don't know how long you're going to be around. Um, so it's more, that's what inspired me to, go from the business I was in before where I wasn't really making much of an impact and find a position where I massively can. And I moved from an organization that was a hundred thousand employees down to 250 at the time. So it was a massive change, but I'm now in an, envi- in an environment where I can sort of push myself to be the best person that I can. Well, it's, it's, in- it's interesting though, isn't it? On that journey though. You, I mean, it's, it's a funny, wasn't it? We all, um, a lot of what we've talked about is about, you know, the big objective, like the, you know, the misty mountain, the thing that uh, transforms our lives. But really what we want to be is just happy, you know, and actually that's the thing that I, um, I've sort of spoken to a lot of people about recently, actually, with everything that's happened with my mum and, and sorry for the loss of your friend, it, it, it changes your day to day because some of the things that used to be important, you know, on January the 11th, are now not important on January 13th because yep. of the change in my life, you know? And that's weird coming to terms with that. The loss of that is strange, you know? So you can't put everything into, well, I'll be happy when, or you can't be put everything into when I get this thing or when I achieve this thing or when I pass this milestone or whatever. 
um, you've got to you've got to love the journey. You've got to kind of love the thing that you're doing. And that's the thing that I mean, over the last six years, stands out to me working at Eleven FS as opposed to working every every you know where else that I've ever been. And it was why I'm so was so determined to start a business in the first place. Was I wanted to build a business that actually people really loved being at. And actually, if you really focus on that, again, it comes back to our mission. If you do that, then you really enjoy the journey. It's not just about the destination. This is not because it's not about, you know, selling out or an IPO or whatever, you know, like those things will come. But actually, it's about enjoying every day, because if you enjoy every day, well, if it's my last, then, you know, had a lot of fun getting to here. I think it's also, um, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's also a recent guest on my show was a chief revenue officer and um obviously a, a lot of people expect sales leaders to be the typical like money is everything but it's funny he was the one that um instilled in me that success is not the same for everyone and it's important for businesses to cater to what an individual deems as is deems as success for a lot of people it may be money for some people it may be their job title for some it may be like what they can add to their CV that for some, it may be like what they can actually achieve within a business and the sort of impact that they can have. But for a business to succeed, I think it's important for managers to understand that not everyone is motivated by the same stuff. So you can't put one blanket approach for a whole organization. Otherwise you will have turnover of top talent that aren't motivated by the same things as the the people that aren't that best talent. Right. So there's that sort of tailoring that, that goes into it. Um, and obviously, we've spoken a lot about talent, and I know obviously it's a big part of 11FS and what you try and do for organizations. Would you say that talent is the master key to a business's success? And how does a business sort of instill that mantra in their culture? Yeah, I mean, I'd say I wouldn't say it's just talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say sort of talent, culture and purpose. Um, and actually, if you can kind of get those two, th- those three things kind of create such a positive cycle in my mind um because i mean you could have i mean all banks have phenomenally talented people right but without the culture to unlock that potential and without a purpose that means everybody gets out of bed every day to pursue it well then actually you can't create the tension you need to to really make change happen equally you could be a incredibly purpose-driven you know incredibly uh sort of motivating charity but unless you can bring the, the talented people in to, to actually make it happen or create a culture, well, you're not going to achieve your objectives. So I, I don't think it's as clear as just talent, but they're all uh, momentum. You know, if you get the right talent, it's easier to create the right culture. And there, I mean, there was there's something in what you just said there about, you know, different motivations in terms of what drives different types of people. And then you've got to be really particular about that and really understand that because it, to your point around, um, there's a great Nigel Clough quote around, you know, 11 people came off the, the pitch after the, you know, a, a kind of a semi-final and they lost 5-0 and some of them need to kick up the arse and some of them need telling that it was the best game they've ever done and some of them need ignoring and then, you know, like everybody needs different motivation, right? Mm-hmm. But actually your organisation, particularly if you're starting from scratch, has the ability to pick the players. You know, literally you pick everybody that comes onto your rocket ship, Right. So being in a situation where you are picking people who are have similar motivations is really important. You know, the one example you, you I sort of that stood out to me is if people are motivated by titles, that's not a good sign. Do mm. you know what I mean? Because that's it's not about um, I'm the CEO. It's like well, actually, that's that's because of the dominance that that gives you over other people, which actually is a really negative trait, if that makes sense. So hiring for culture and hiring, you know, bringing talent in who is uh, similarly minded when it comes to motivations and dedications and ways of sustainably the ways of working is is absolutely critical to it. Um, but yeah, talent is just one of the the three things that I think would um, would really set people up for success. Mm, no, absolutely. I think it's like a it's a mindset thing as well. I, I I think previously organizations, they obviously knew that talent was important, but a lot of them don't put their business's success down to how their talent is within the business, right? They 
um it's which is ridiculous think, yeah yeah it's absolutely crazy. ridiculous it's crazy and I, I it's definitely changing i think with the the great resignation and stuff that is going on people are definitely valuing the top talent they have within their business and are looking to obviously attract similar people but it's funny that it's kind of like been a a shift themselves and i think the pandemic has been a massive sort of match to that fire um so that a lot of organizations are now looking at talent and hr not as a cost center but actually as a way to make a business successful um which is which is quite interesting definitely i mean the, the way that we think about that is you know it is performance it's not it's not really talent it's actually uh, you know, in a sporting team, the the coaches are there to get the best out of the players. Mm. They're not there just to bring the players in, right? So that entirety of the the backroom staff is critical to ensure that actually the investment you make in people is is returned. You know, again, if you you can bring in the rock stars of the world, but unless you actually can motivate them or align them to achieve the right things, then you get nothing done. Mm. No, absolutely, and um, still kind of on talent, but we we mentioned the your a movie fan with Marvel and obviously you, you love going to see your beloved Norwich City. Um, how important is it for, for you personally to have a work-life balance? And do you think it's important for individuals within your organization to sort of see you taking time away from your desk so they think that they can also do the same? Um, it's a difficult question, if I'm honest with you, because um, my situation and, you know, employees at 11FS, um, are very different. Do you know what I mean? Like this is, I've got three kids. I've got Josh, Ivy and 11FS. Um, so actually when it kind of comes to, to, to what my ethic is or my attitude to work-life balance is, is like actually if it helped us achieve the goal, I'd work 24-7 for 20 days. Like actually that would be fine, you know? Um, but I don't expect that from anybody else around the organization at all. Uh, and actually we we actually discourage it like in a in a major way because um because we're set up for different things you know my objective starting the business and my aim you know with where we want to get the business to is very different from somebody who's trying to make sure that actually they're learning the industry and further in their career mm. so setting that clear boundaries of like you know you, and not everybody has to do this not everybody has to work like this but I really do think there is some realism there that, I mean, I'm working hard now, don't get me wrong, but actually from that moment with the railings and my 2-1, like I actually don't think I've been working any different in 11FS than I really have been when I was working in a big consultancy or working in a big bank. Um, and actually when you when you really boil it down to everything, really, I mean, the 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 harder you work, the luckier you get is like a, a, a real thing, you know, and, and it's not scientific, don't get me wrong, but the that mantra around it, but the critical thing of everything in that is like sustainability. Mm-hmm. Like not everybody has the same limits, not everybody has the same objectives, not everybody, you know, some people are happy coming in and doing a nine to five. And they, you know, we do. In fact, on Fridays, everybody finishes work at 2 p.m. Because in in this weird period, we we really feel people are being too productive. You know, like we actually feel that there needs to be more of a balance. So we're we're enforcing it by like clocking everybody off at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so from from my perspective, it's it's like everybody has to find their own balance and find their own thing. You know, if your objective is to learn as much about everything as you can and you're working in an industry that you love, then the hard thing for me really is what is work and what is life is is so heavily blurred anyway. Um, but everybody needs to remember that they do have a life. I think that's the thing. Uh, and however much, you know, work drinks and like work events and stuff is really fascinating. Like everybody has a family. Everybody will have somebody else that they should be spending time with. Um, and when it comes down to it, those things are way more important than work. Um, so we really encourage people to get that balance. Mm. No, it's interesting. And um, I think like I, I've been guilty of it myself, like especially upcoming generations, I think we want like we 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 crave recognition right and that's something that upcoming generation i just as i say coming back to instagram and other sorts of things like you're constantly getting instant gratification through apps like that and that transitions into all ways of life so i've sort of seen it in my work where i've been on annual leave and there's been an important call and i'm like oh for god's sake like i 
I don't want to miss the call. I know I should, but I'm like, there's something that's biting inside me. That's like, what are they going to think of me if I'm not on this call, even though I'm on annual leave and I have been for a week, a week and a half. When realistic, no, no one cares. Like that people know you're on leave. So they're like, oh, we'll record it. We'll send it to you after. But it's funny though, isn't it? Those, those things. And actually do they, I mean, it's the funny thing. It's like, well, does that, uh, if you're a professional sports person, does that extra, you know, mouthful of chocolate or whatever, does it make a difference? You know, I remember doing a, um, I don't know why this is flashback in my brain, but I remember when I was on holiday in Portugal, when I was working at, at Gartner, we were working with a particularly difficult client. Uh, and I was I was on holiday that week, but I took uh, I went off the beach and sat in our rental car with my laptop in my swimsuit uh, <laughs> on, on a VC call uh, with no air conditioning in it, sweating like you wouldn't believe because I felt that that CIO would respect the hustle of like mm. that and that they would buy into the relationship more because and they did loads of work with this so it's probably true um but yeah i mean it's difficult i, I mean i do i do believe there is a again a, there's there is a direct correlation between the harder you work the lucky you get the, the opportunities that come to you because you're putting in that extra effort but again everybody has a limit that isn't like you know we've seen investment banks work people to the to the bone when it comes to you know, hiring and firing. And, you know, if you don't do it, there's 10 other people that will type mentality. And that's horrific, it really is. Um, but I don't think there's any getting away from that. If this journey that everybody is on in their careers is about amassing uh, experience and knowledge, that's really what it comes down to. And it, it's why I kind of put back on that point that I made earlier on around if every three months I was adding something, a bullet to my CV that I felt I'd learned a new skill, then actually I'm I'm adding value to my employer, I'm adding value to me, right? Um, if, if you can just keep amassing those, you know, those experiences, well, no doubt the people who are doing more are gonna amass more of those experiences and therefore go further. Now the problem comes though, is if people are being uh, promoted or furthered, not because of their knowledge or their experiences. But just because they're good old boys and they hang out with people and play golf and you know go to the pub and whatnot and and that's where i think the balance gets wrong which is like look if you want a kind of extra curriculum do an extra you know five hours a, a week because you love cryptocurrency and it's just the you it's just the best you know you just love that thing brilliant if it's you know you're doing 10 hours a week because somebody's putting pressure on you to do more work than you should do that's wrong mm -hmm. um and i think you know, again, many industries, many organizations that have those types of practices um, are really coming and stuck in this uh, in this environment now as well. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that you, you you mentioned about the sort of the the sort of the good old boys and stuff like the. I think we're seeing it with the pandemic as well. Like, I've got friends that say to me, "Yeah, but even though they don't want to go into the office, they're going into the office because they think that the because the senior people are in the office, they're limiting their." promotion opportunities if they're not being seen and i can understand the principle of kind of not like wanting to stay in eyesight or wanting to stay relevant but i think there's a sort of happy medium between like actually putting yourself in those situations but also doing it for the, the right reasons um and i think to, to come back to a couple of points earlier the the sort of effort and, and luck thing like it's, it's, it's a reason why I started this podcast like I, I started this when I was in the a large organization I was in I, I was the first um, individual within my team to come in as a graduate most of them normally they would go and work in the industry for 20-30 years and then they'd come back to be um, a sort of consultant for that industry and obviously part of that role was therefore to do thought leadership and that sort of stuff and I was like, right, how am I going to do thought leadership and industries when I haven't even worked in the industry? And I was like, right, well, let's just try and extract that knowledge from other people. So I was like, right, let's, let's, instead of, I was like, I'm not going to write a white paper. I'm not going to do any of that. Let's try and sort of bring it into the 21st century a little bit. And I was like, right, let's start a podcast. And as you say, even though going through the grind, it, it hasn't, it, like, it didn't have a direct correlation. Like I didn't get paid for it. I didn't like, there was, but I was having amazing conversations with individuals like yourselves, gaining connections and like the role that I'm in now, I probably wouldn't have got if I didn't have the podcast. It's those sorts of things where that extra bit of effort you put in that adds an hour or two to your week or whatever that is, 
later down the line, you don't know when it will happen, but absolutely it will have a positive impact on your life. And this especially has sort of put that into perspective for me. So now I'm much more willing to give stuff a go and just crack on and see where those reps take me because I, I know well, I sort of have had direct experience where it has led to a positive impact on my life. So no, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Most people won't do that. Most people want the outcome. I mean, the, the, the best book that I've ever been uh, read or, and, and sort of, uh, you know, saying I've been read the book sort of points to you when I was read the book, like <laughs> as a kid with the little red head, like uh, if you, if you haven't read it, it's about uh, a bunch of animals that want the bread, but are not prepared to help in any way, shape or form. And there's this little red hen who does it all. And actually it just comes back to that moral, which is like, everybody wants to be successful but most people are not prepared to put in the work that actually makes them successful um and actually you know what you've done with this podcast is you put yourself out there that's a really hard thing to do most people would not do that um but you have and that's you know that's why it's you know proving successful is that you know uh putting yourself out there and then the the determination to stick to it and and grind through the the self-doubt and the the hard nights and the, you know, the long effort that comes with all of these things. Um, but, you know, momentum is everything, right? If you, uh, if you start, then you, you find the, uh, the ability to keep going. Yeah. Just got to take that first step. Haven't you? Um, and to sort of move on a little bit, um, just to, as we come to the end of the show, um, if you had a crystal ball and you were going to look into it, what do you see, changing within financial services or business in general in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, and, and, and actually if you just take some of the trends that are happening now, I mean, um, last 15, 20 years, it's taking people and paper out of the process and actually that's going to continue. You know, we are going to see much less people, much less paper in it. And that's not just like paperless statements. It's like, actually we're at a point now where, algorithms and AI can do everything humans can do effectively. You know, we've got Teslas on the road, you know, self-driving cars, like all things that are happening. So, so why am I still being fined for going into my overdraft and having to move savings money around manually to avoid that? You know, actually self-driving money is where we're going to get to, which when you kind of look at the, you know, nobody really, I mean, and it's really easy when you're in the industry to be like, fintech looks fun and everybody likes banking. Everybody hates banking. Like nobody likes financial services. Like normal people don't care. Um, what they want is organizations to use their skill, their understanding of it. Stop trying to convince me that I need to know what APR is and like the, you know, how compound interest is factored into it and start doing that stuff for me to make me better off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at the, the sort of private banker for the mass market when it comes to what actually that could bring. Well, we're pretty much there now with the technological capability that we've got to really make those things happen. So yeah, self-driving money, I think, will be where we get to. Um, And actually that opens up organizations to all different types of opportunities because actually if your bank is there to make you better off, not to be better off by you being there, Mm. uh, then actually the industry changes dramatically. And I think a lot of the trust that has been lacking in the last couple of years um, will start to flow back into the industry as well. Mm. No, it's interesting. I think the example that comes to mind is investing. I think we, especially like on social media and stuff, it's so prevalent at the moment in terms of compound interest and putting your money in an index fund or an ETF and leaving it there for, I imagine like if you put hundred pound a month in, obviously when you're 65, you'll have over a million and don't get me wrong. It's obviously completely true, but it's like, I've, I've obviously got a stocks and shares ISA and, and put money into it. It's not that simple to do. Like it's mortgages, for example, when I bought a house, the amount of paper that came through to your point that you have to physically sign and then post back. And I'm like, it's, it's 2022. What are we doing? Like, they're the sorts of things where when you say those examples, I'm like, oh yeah, actually there's still a long road to go down and a lot of stuff that still needs to change. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating. And um, now David, just to, to sort of um, go into your, the sort of post-it notes and advice again. So you're, you're obviously very well known for sharing a whole host of advice on and inspiration on, on social media. So it may be difficult to narrow down, um, just one, but as, as we come to the conclusion of the episode, what would be your one best piece of advice for anyone that's listening 
that could be to sea levels that could be to management that could be to early talent or anyone in between yeah i mean i really think it's um the learning that i i've sort of come across most frequently with you know ceos or board people in in banks is is getting them to realize that actually the pace of change means the reality that they thought existed is different so letting go of the things that you hold dearest when it comes to what makes up your mindset uh is really important you know i i really think um if you're not prepared with new evidence to change your opinion then you're failed to eventually really fail in a, in a major way mm-hmm. um so i think i think that would be my my thing my major thing if you're you know you're talking about somebody seeing you within one of those organizations it's like be sure about what you really know um i think when it comes to to everybody else you know i, I kind of echo everything that i've said through this it's like there is no substitute for hard work uh, and actually you know whether you're um you know whether you learn that super early you know like i'm trying to instill into my my kids and you know 10 year old and 7 year old it's you know it mixed results sometimes they're making that happen or whether you get to like 23 and you realize that well, like i did mm. um then there is literally no substitute for hard work and just to to finish off and kind of roll out the red carpet a little bit if anyone wants to find out some more information about yourself or 11fs where's the best place for them to do so Yeah sure I mean you can find us on 11fs.com uh, I mean I predominantly lurk on LinkedIn these days so just connect with me on LinkedIn Nice great and uh, yeah David I've I've really enjoyed today's episode it's been it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you um on let's shape the future so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me it's been great learning about you as an individual the evolution of of business and financial services um life as a CEO and, and much more so so thank you so much for taking the time No worries great to talk to you And that's the end of the penultimate episode of season 3 of Let's Shape the Future. A big thank you for taking the time to listen and to our sponsors Beamery. We've got an amazing episode to finish off the season next week. The Chief People Officer at McLaren Racing will be joining us on Let's Shape the Future to share a whole host of insights. I cannot wait. I hope you're looking forward to it as well and I hope you have an amazing week. Thanks guys.